The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwire.org. Yeah. 
will bless the Lord who guides me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I know the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me.
start off, I'm going to be in Psalm uh, chapter 27. Uh, Psalm 27, I'm going to read uh, both verses 1 and 13. The header for Psalm 27 is, The Lord is my light and my salvation, and it's attributed to David. So here's verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Pretty strong words there. Very much a line in the sand. And let's go. So verse 13 says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of of the living. Uh, I've been running for a while. I started uh, a few years back. Uh, during the pandemic, I ran a ton more, and then I've continued to uh, run a bit. I was talking to uh, Lewis, uh, my doctor. Um, I, I, I really, I can't go very far um, without just getting completely gassed. It kind of is what it is. He told me I was hypoxic, so it's like not enough blood in 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 there's not enough oxygen in my blood, enough to get to the organs, enough to just continue to propel my body. I just don't have a lot in, in the tank. And so if you would imagine, this is what it looks like. In the beginning, um, imagine like Rocky, right, playing in the background. I've got like this headband on, if you've ever seen me run. It's a brightly colored headband, and I'm just, I'm going for it, right? And I'm just going out, and I'm running faster if I've got a music playlist coming on, or if I'm listening to an audio book, it may be a slower pace. But regardless, my stride's pretty soft strong, my cadence, and, and I'm going. And that is really great for about one or two blocks. And then after that, the, the wheels come off, really. And it's really hard for me to breathe, but I'm like, you, you, you settle in. And so I know about where a mile marker is. And so if you've ever seen me stopped on the side of the road, and if you see me run, you know where that mile marker is about, because that's where I run to. I, I'm struggling. I'm trying to catch my breath. My side's hurting, but I'm, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it to the mile marker. Um, some say David didn't write um, Psalm 27. Some commentaries say that. Some say that David wrote Psalm 27, but it was actually two totally different songs. I've done that before, right? You write song, you song lyrics for something. You write lyrics for another thing. Neither one of them really work as a standalone, but you put them together, and then you've got a whole cohesive song. So I've done that before, too. Um, but they say most likely, you know, King David probably wrote this as two separate fragments. And so you kind of see the disparity in the line in the sand at the beginning. And then at the end, it's a little different. It's funny in, in one of the, the versions we read in, in Psalm twenty-seven, thirteen, it says, I would have fainted. I would have fainted had I not had the confidence to believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord. I wouldn't have been able to keep going. Um, I, the other day it was cold, and so if you don't see me running, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Well, anyway, if you don't see me running, chances are I'm probably on the treadmill. We got a treadmill during COVID, and so I'm kind of a, a, a sissy when it comes to cold, and so I'm just going to run inside. And so a treadmill is pretty unforgiving, right? I mean, if you have enough balance, you can kind of jump over and, and not have to worry about falling all over yourself, but it takes some balance. And so I decided to go ahead and run this guided run on the treadmill. And this specific run, I, this is going to be the best word you're going to hear all day, is called a fartlek. 
And a fart lick is essentially like you're running like slow and then you're running fast. You're running slow and you're running fast. And it's and it's order to build endurance. And so I've started this run. I've committed to this run. And so all of a sudden, the coach, she says, okay, you're not going to stop. And immediately I'm like, no, when I get to a mile, I stop. I mean, that's my thing. I, I stop. When my breathing hurts, I stop. You're not going to stop. So she said, in just a minute, it's going to be okay. Bump it up. I run it like a six, and six is like a 10-minute pace, whatever. And so I bumped it up a little bit that time, and I'm running like 30 seconds or whatever. And I just need to get to the end of the 30 seconds. She says, okay, don't stop. Just click it down. Click it down to where it's pretty manageable. And then she says something that completely blows my mind. She says, you recover while you run. You recover while you run. You, you, you keep on going. You don't stop. You may have to go a little bit slower, but you keep on moving. Um, now, some of you may be listening to this and you're like, okay, well, that's great, Franklin. Those are awesome words, but I'm not a runner there, coach, so this doesn't really apply to me. You know, the only time I'm going to run is if something is bigger and it's chasing me, right? And so otherwise, it's not going to happen. Actually, I would say uh, we're all runners in this room. As Paul says, we're all running the race of life. And if we haven't crossed the finish line yet, then we're still running. We're, we're still competing. And it's not okay in the middle of the race to just stop like this to catch a breather. We have to recover while we run. I was talking to Lewis right before we got started, and I love what he said. He said, sometimes we get spiritually hypoxic. We don't have enough breath from the Holy Spirit's presence in our life in order to continue. And so we, we decide we just have to stop. We decide we have to struggle to get to that mile marker when really the idea is that we are confident that we will see the Lord's goodness in the land of the living. David finishes this psalm in this way. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And the more I thought about it, this is not wait like wait here while I go get help, right? <laughs> this is not wait here like wait here and I will go get a manager. No, th the idea of this wait is, is you're driving and you know that there is a beautiful field coming up on your left, but the person next to you has never been there. And you say this, wait for it. Just wait for it. It's coming. I know you can't see it right now, but it's right there. It's just around the bend. Or maybe, just maybe, you have a gift, and you know what's inside the gift, but somebody else doesn't have any idea. I don't keep a secret well, so most everybody knows what I get them. But anyway, let's say that nobody knows what's inside this gift, and you hand it to them, and you're super excited, and you just want to tell them, but instead you say, wait for it. Just wait for it. It's going to be so amazing. So King David, this is what I love about the Psalms. King David starts resolute. Like, if I've got the Lord, then what have I to fear? 7 through 11 is a cry. Like, all of a sudden, he's like, I forgot what I just wrote. Lord, please help me. I don't know what I'm going to do next. And then he finishes with 14, and he says, just wait for the Lord. Just wait for his goodness. It's just around the bend. 
Just, just, just wait for his goodness. I, I know it's hard. I know you're struggling. I know you feel like you're just going to quit, right? You're just going to throw in the towel. Nobody even cares. Nobody's even encouraging you or, or maybe nobody is even being encouraged by you. Don't quit running your race. We are all runners in here. And if we are all running our race, then we are not finished yet. And if we're not finished yet, then we need to get our breath from our Heavenly Father in order to continue to be a light in the lives of those we come in contact with. Will you pray with me? Father, it's your breath in our lungs. and Lord, we, we pour out our praise, Father, in those moments when we feel faint. I pray that, uh, Lord, that we will be confident, that we will see your goodness in the land of the living, Lord that it's just around the bend, Lord, that we live a life of expectancy. Lord, that we know that we don't have to struggle through this on our own. Father, that we we may not have enough to get through the next step, but you do. And so we rest in you today. Father, we know that you have certain things for us, certain things that you've called us to, certain things that are bigger than what we can see. But waiting does not mean We just sit there and do nothing. Waiting means expectancy, knowing there's something just around the bend. Knowing that our Lord's goodness is right before our very eyes. Father, all our lives you have been faithful. All our lives you have been so, so good. So we proclaim your glory today. We testify to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's the biggest party you've ever been invited to? Uh, This is a picture of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. They got married in May of 2018. Uh, She broke from tradition. If you follow much of her story, that's kind of her MO. Uh, Most of the royal weddings are held on Wednesday so they can take a day off from work. But she held hers, they held theirs on a Saturday. And uh, here are just a few of the stats from their wedding. The cake cost 50,000 pounds. Didn't weigh 50,000 pounds. It cost 50,000 pounds sterling. That's how they measure their money. The floral, the floral arrangements were 110,000 pounds. The catering cost 286,000 pounds sterling. I have no idea what that means. Uh, the total of it is 32 million pounds. I put it in your little Googling machine, and it comes up $38 million. $38 million bucks they spent on that wedding. You think your wedding was expensive? Oh, my. 2,640 people attended their wedding. My goodness. Uh, how many of you watched Charles and Diana, Chuck and Die wedding? Anybody in here old enough to remember Chuck and Die? Okay. Uh, Chuck and Die's wedding, they estimated 750 million people watched it. They estimate 2 billion people watched this wedding. Now, for us here in the United States, royal weddings are kind of interesting because it's the joy of a wedding, but we're all kind of fascinated with the pageantry and the because we don't understand it it's it's not it's not in our realm and so we watch and the princess and the whole you know the horse-drawn carriage thing but 
Let me ask you seriously, what is the biggest party you've ever been to? Uh, I remember vividly the first wedding I went to that had a meal at it. I mean, I was raised around here. I was rednecked up, all right? I go to a wedding, and then we go down to the fellowship hall for the reception, and you get that giant glass plate, you know, this weighs like 18 pounds, and in the little glass cup that if I break this, my life is over, and it's got 7-Up and cranberry juice in it, and you got the little peanuts and the mints, and you knock the mints off in the trash so you can get more peanuts. You know what I'm talking about? That was, the whole, that was weddings to me. I didn't understand a meal. I'd seen them in movies, so I go to this wedding. I actually performed the wedding, and we come in for the reception, sitting down at these round tables. What is all this? I don't know what to do with all this stuff. I was, uh, I, it was weird to me. What about you? Have you ever been to a super big party? What about uh, what is the biggest party in our world? If you look it up, you'll find different things that re- register all the way back to the 8th century B.C., Pretty much everybody agreed that the biggest party in our world right now would be called Carnival, which is in Rio, uh, Brazil. It's a big one. It'd be similar to Mardi Gras here. It's a big party. How many of you have ever watched uh, New Year's Rockin' Eve, Dick Clark, uh, or now Ryan Seacrest as it is? And what, what would it be like if you got an engraved invitation to that? I mean, there's a quarter million people that go to New York Times or uh, Times Square in New York Times, uh, New York uh, for the uh, dropping of the ball. What if you got an engraved invitation? How serious would you take it? We're in this series called Storyline. It's the parables of Jesus. We're looking at the kingdom of God, and and we're going to stay with this series all the way through the holidays. You may be going, well, aren't you going to do Christmas trees and stuff like that? Well, we're going to decorate the place up, but we're going to... We're going to be in this idea of the story of Jesus and how they show us the kingdom. But I'm going to warn you right now, if you just want to start turning to Luke 14, we're going to be there. This parable should disturb you. And if it doesn't disturb you, then maybe we need to check your moral compass because it may not be pointing to true north. This is a parable about a party, but in this parable he describes the the kingdom of God and theology with the gospel invitation wrapped into it. The reality of sin, but the grace of God. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Let's go ahead and bring up the lights, and we're, we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I want you to get a couple of the phrases out of this one. And join me in Luke chapter 14, verse 16. Here we go. Jesus replied with this story, A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Excuse me. Please excuse me. Another said, I now have a wife, so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town. Invite the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported there's still room for more. So his master said, go out into the country lanes behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those who 
I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. You realize that almost every society has two celebrations, a funeral and a wedding, pretty much across cultural lines. Now, they're going to have different traditions involved with them. One is for grief. One is for unmitigated joy, a party, a celebration. And this particular parable is special because it it deals with the refusal of Israel to welcome Jesus. But before you start pointing fingers, it's very easy to go, oh, well, Don, you're talking about Israel. This doesn't apply to me. Before you start pointing fingers, be careful because you might be pointing at you and I. We're here too. And the reason I need you to know that is I want you to get it in context. Jesus is eating at a place. Go back to the 14th chapter and verse 1. You'll see that Jesus is eating with the leader of the Pharisees. Now that's going to seem odd because we, we kind of gripe at the Pharisees a lot. He's usually calling them out. And then go, jump down to verse 15, right before we started reading. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Those two statements that he's at a Pharisee's house with a bunch of Pharisees and they want to hear about this banquet, Jesus sees a big teaching moment. That The biggest key to the kingdom is not how high you can get, but how low you can go. And that is huge. He's talking about humility. And this is going to fly in the face of all of these Pharisees sitting at this banquet. And it's going to fly in the face of the American dream. The American dream is all about me. It's all about get what I want, get me above, get be above everybody else. I want, want, want. And the, that is not what this banquet is about. This invitation, the invitation to his kingdom, is going to come with these words on the front, for the humble only. Jesus says, there is only a certain kind of people that are going to get into the kingdom. Now that kind of comment, he is talking to Pharisees that are living an elitist lifestyle. We're better than everybody else. We think we're better. We are better. And then he tells this story to explain what kind of humility he is expecting. He starts talking about a big party. A big party is to be held. We don't really know if it's a wedding or what. It might be just he wanted to throw a party. We don't really know. It doesn't really matter. It's going to be a big party. But I want you to see a couple of things in verse 16 and verse 17. In verse 16, he says he sends out an invitation and he invites a wide variety of people. And then in verse 17, he sends out another invitation. To, the banquet is ready. You need to understand this because this negates one of the arguments. A lot of people would say, oh, well, I didn't hear about it. I didn't know it was happening. All right, in verse 16, he, he tells them it's happening. Anybody ever got a save the date? You know, a little postcard. I've got a couple of them on my fridge, one for, for a, a lovely couple that are here today. Save the date, all right? Then about three weeks before the wedding, you'll get the formal one, right? It's all in script, and here's the time, and a little RSVP card or whatever, you know. And, and that's coming later. You can't say you didn't know about this banquet because he, he let you know. He sent out the save the date. And then when it came time for the date, he didn't send out an invitation. He sent out a person. He sent a personal invitation to these people. 
And the very first thing they do is start making excuses. Isn't that funny how we do that? Well, hey, uh, you know, man, I got, I just, I just bought this field. I got to go check it out. Don't you think you probably checked it out a little bit before you bought it? Or the next guy says, well, I got, uh, I got these five pairs of oxen I got to go try out. Let's be honest. Couldn't you try those out on Monday uh, after the weekend party? Let's be honest. Well, I just got married. She's not going to let me go. You know, maybe maybe that's what it is. And do you really think a guy that's going to throw this party this big is going to exclude your lovely new bride? What he's doing, what that last guy's doing, he's he's doing basically what all of us do is we blame it on our spouse. When we don't want to do something, we blame it on our spouse, right? It's that's their. She's not going to let me. That is clearly unbiblical. That is clearly not what we're supposed to do. If you want to get out of something, don't blame it on your spouse. Blame it on the kids. That's what they're there for. Uh. But now look real close. I want you to look at the types of excuses these people are giving them. Business and relationships. Look real close. Business excuses relationship excuses what are some of the best excuses we give to god well i got god you know what i'll get i'll get with god but i gotta get my business going i'm working really hard i gotta get my career going i'm doing my schooling i gotta get all this stuff when i get it all caught up then i'll serve you god or hey man i got kids and we got all this other stuff to do and i'm doing all this and i love all this but i when i get when we get all of our sports and we get all of our everything sorted out then i'll have time for you god biblical humility is putting things in their proper place are we humble enough to put him in first position in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is talking about the people that everything's going wrong, it says God gave them over to their own desires and they began to worship the created things rather than the Creator. They, they were so concerned with stuff, the, the things that were made instead of the guy that made it. What has first priority in your life? That could be some good things. A good thing is your business. Should you take care of your family? Absolutely. That's a good thing. Well, then it's too busy that I don't have time for God. Well, now you went too far. What about your family? I uh, Playing with my family and doing sports and doing activities and all this stuff to, with my family. Good thing, right? But now I don't have time for God. Well, then maybe we went a little too far. Listen to what, what C.S. Lewis said. This was fun. Uh, he said this over 100 years ago. He said, my car was made to run on petrol. He's British. That's what they call it over there. And, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, all of us know you've got gas cars, you've got diesel, uh, and, and you've got electric cars now. Most of us around here, if you put diesel in a gas engine, what did you just do? Yeah, it's pretty much done, right? Yeah, you just pretty much re- wrecked it. It's going to be hard. It, it, there, a diesel engine will run good on diesel, but a gas won't, uh, and and vice versa. He goes on, C.S. Lewis says, My God designed the human machine to run on himself. We humans too often try to make it run on something else. God cannot give us happiness apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. 
You might be sitting there, but Don, I go to church. I'm here on Sunday morning. That's great. I love that. I'm, fa- I'm thrilled with that. And I want us to do that. But what fuels you? What is it that is absolutely driving you? Men, are we getting our identity from our jobs? Because a lot of times we're, hi, I'm Don Thomas, and this is my job. That's, isn't that how we introduce ourselves? This is what I do, not who I am. Women, women, a lot of women battle mom guilt. Well, I'm, I've got work to do, and, and I really should be with my kids. I'm with my kids. I really have got work to do. And, and we're always torn between all these other things is our identity in Him. Because a real mature Christian, a Christian that is putting their priorities in order, is one that stops making excuses and starts making changes. That has the guts to look in the mirror and say, man, things are out of whack. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. If someone gave you Super Bowl tickets, would you mow your lawn that afternoon? I mean, realistically, if somebody gave you that big of a gift and they knew you loved football, would, what would your day look like? What would your week look like? What if I was going to give you, I knew you were a football fan, I'm going to give you all expense paid trip to the big game for like five days. Man, you, all the money you need, all the, the, you know, you go to the concerts, eat out, do the whole thing. Don't worry, I'm not doing that. I don't got that kind of cash. All right. Uh, it's not happening. It's just a made up preacher story, like most of my stories. But um, so what if I gave you that? What if I gave you that gift? Would that affect your week? Would you... Well, I, I could, I'd love to, but I got a nail appointment that day. Seriously? It would, wouldn't it affect everything? Everything would take a back, back seat to that, wouldn't it? When you understand the, the gift, you see the heart of the giver. And I'm afraid sometimes us Western Christians, we, we have gotten casual about the gift. We... We get busy with stuff. We're heading into Christmas season and we're all, you know, how are we going to pay for it and what are we going to get and what are the gifts? And we're all into the stuff. Do we miss the joy of the gift? I, I'll admit to you, I get busy about the business of church. I got to get to this person. I got to talk to this person. We got church business to do and I forget the, the gift of just hanging out with you guys, singing and worshiping and just. Being, you know what I'm saying? The great banquet is for people that are humble enough to see him and to see how great his gift is. I read a story about an older soldier who was speaking at a Veterans Day dinner. They asked him, what's the greatest thing that happened to you while you were on your tour of duty? What's the, uh, what's the most amazing thing that you saw? And he goes, I'll tell you. He said, one particular day, we were all working, and I was out walking around, and they were digging foxholes, and there was one young guy in a foxhole, and he was laying there, and he was reading. He was reading really intently on a book. I said, hey, boy, what you reading? I said, I'm reading the Bible. And he, he said, I told him, ah, you need to let that go. That's, just forget that. Give it up, man. I, I read that book before. It didn't do me any good. And he said, he looked at me, and he said, if you knew what the Bible means to me, you'd never ask me to give it up. He said, but when he said that, as he spoke, 
the light on his face, the smile on his face, it just like illuminated him. He was so excited. I, I was stunned. I, it, was, it was like he was glowing. And just then I started to walk away and artillery shells started coming in. And they were bombing us and everybody's running, everybody's diving for cover and we all get through it. And after the barrage and all the smoke clears, we're starting to clear up. And I go back and I check on that guy. And sadly he was... He's fatally wounded in that attack. And he's laying there in that foxhole clutching that Bible close to his chest, close to his pocket. And he reaches in his, he said, it was this Bible. I got that Bible from him. And you want to know what the best gift, I, the, the most amazing thing I ever saw in, in war was the look on that kid's face when he talked about this book. Because I can say that I took that book and I read it. And his Savior is now my Savior. He said, that's the greatest gift I got. Wow. Do I have that kind of intensity about the gift? Here's a question. God wants intimacy with us. Are we just looking for a convenient relationship for him? I mean... Let's be honest, the invitation's been offered dozens of times, haven't we? We've all heard it. The preacher stand up there. We're going to sing 73 verses of just as I am and just can't one more soul come on down. We've all seen that. But have we accepted it? Have we put him in first position? A lot of people say, well, I'm going to church. That's not what I asked. Have you put him in first position? You see, the guests that were invited to the banquet, they had their priorities out of whack. They heard about it. They knew about it, but they didn't do anything about it. This parable should make us look in the mirror and really make us analyze what our priorities are. But I want you to look then at what the master does. The master had invited all these people and they got excuses. So he sends in verse 21, he says, go back out there and you get the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Now before we go deeper, I want you to zoom out for a second. Remember where Jesus is when he's telling this story, telling this made up story. Where is he? He is sitting in a house with a bunch of Pharisees. Now, how is that statement going to go over with those guys? Not very well, because to a Jew, to a, to a Pharisee, if you're blind or you're lame, there is something wrong with you, that is an, a sin. Now, I don't agree with that, but that's how they looked at it. Oh, a flawed person is sin. Flawed people are worth less. Not worthless, but they, they aren't valuable like us like us Pharisees are. Jesus is prophesying about who will be in the kingdom of heaven. And these Jews love their elite status. Hey man, I got the golden ticket. I'm in. I, because of who I am, I'm in. I'm his child. We're, we're his chosen. Friends, are we humble enough to realize there will be people in heaven? There will be people in his kingdom that we wouldn't necessarily choose. This is going to come as a shock to some people, but there are people of a different skin color that will be in the kingdom of heaven. There absolutely will be. And to make that statement offends some people. Because some are still steeped in that racial divide. And the fact that I make that, that they're offended at that offends me. Because we need to be the people that are, are dealing with racial re reconciliation. 
We need to be the people that, that love no matter what the skin color is, no matter what the nationality is. There will be people in heaven that are from different nationalities. You say, well, what's the big deal with that? There are certain nationalities that absolutely don't get along, right? There are going to be people in, in his kingdom that have bad behavior in their past. I've been fascinated lately with the criminal on the cross and what he didn't do. Do you realize what he didn't do? He never got baptized. He never, he never prayed the sinner's prayer that you won't find in there. I, and I'm not bashing on that. He didn't do all the things that we say we got to do. You know what I'm saying? He didn't, he didn't go to church. He didn't help out in kid zone. He didn't go to a potluck. He didn't do one thing. He didn't even ask right. He just said, will you remember me? Jesus says, today, today, you're with me. Because he saw the heart. Do you realize there will be people in heaven that cheer for a different team? fact that there might be Philadelphia Eagles fans in heaven <laughs> makes my head hurt. Uh, there might be people that like kale in heaven. That's wrong. Right? That's just sinful. There might be people that like cats in heaven. I don't like that. There might be people that vote differently. Oh, no, Don. Uh-uh, man, if they vote for that side, uh-uh. They can't possibly... Do you see how quickly we put on those Pharisee clothes? Do you see how quickly we become those guys? You see, humility means letting God determine who gets in His kingdom. Not me. Him. Now that's hard. But you need to know this. Humility, don't confuse humility with a lack of self-worth. Or humiliation. You see, humiliation is, I think, from the, the enemy. Humiliation makes you feel weak and, and worthless and enslaved. Humility allows you to serve with, with great strength. Humiliation can make you feel helpless and that you don't fit in and you've made too many mistakes and you don't belong. But humility gives you hope. Humility is a choice and a very difficult one. In the 1930s, uh, there was a bus, and three young teenagers got on this bus, and they were causing trouble. And they started, you know, threatening people and making motions and, you know, know, and doing all this. And there was one older African-American man in the back of the bus that was sitting there quietly, and they started picking on him and threatening him and insulting him. He'd just smile at him, didn't say a word, didn't do a thing. They were just, you know, they were just being teenagers, being stupid. After a few minutes, the older man reaches up and pulls the little cord, and it's his stop, and he gets up to leave, and he reaches in his pocket, and he hands one of them a business card. And he gets off the bus, and they look at the business card, and it said, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> Those kids were trying to pick a fight with the heavyweight champion from 1937 to 1949. Now, could he have cleaned their clocks and never even broke a sweat, all right? That was a bad, bad choice there. But Lewis demonstrated a virtue that is misunderstood and rarely pursued 
God says the kingdom is for people who know who they are and who they belong to. If you know who you are and who you belong to, then you're going to know what to do. Whether they vote like you, whether they think like you, whether they cheer like you, you're going to know what to do. Could it be that we we don't care about humanity as much as we claim? Quickly, I want you to get this as we're getting close to finishing. The, the first ones invited were everybody. And they had excuses. The next one invited were outcast, blind, crippled, lame. All right, That right there is going to upset the Pharisees. Okay, But the guy goes, well, we're full. We're not full. We still got space. Then he goes one more. He says, you go back out and you go out into the country. I want you to get this from, from this version, the New Living Translation. Verse 22, after the servant had done this, he reported there's still room for more. Look at this in verse 23. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. It was that phrase, the hedges. Behind the hedges. That was, what, what's that all about? And I started looking in there. I was like, what's the big deal? Short version is, this is a direct reference to Gentiles. Outside of the hedge. Outside of the temple. They don't fit in. They don't look like. They don't fit. You know what I'm saying? That was the beginning of the end of Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees. He first says, it's bad enough, we're letting lame and crippled and broken people in here. Now you're letting all them sinners in here? You are crazy, Jesus. He said, so the house will be full. My Father's house has room for everybody, including broken people. And I'm thankful because that's all we are, amen? Everybody in here is broken. Everybody in here has got a past. Everybody in here is dealing with something. But how we walk with the broken shows more about our character than how we sit with the rich and pretty. Right? I told you this parable should disturb you. Why? A couple of three quick things. First, are you the Pharisee sitting at this banquet? Now, that's harsh, because I'm just, I'm coming at you hot, right? Do you think you're in because of you? I'm afraid in our Western culture, in our our Christianity, that we're safe and secure because I'm a member of that church, and, you know, I go when I have time, and, I, you know, that, that's that's where I'm at. I'm, I, I, I got my ticket punched. Look, I want you to have your ticket punched. I just don't want you to be casual about it. I don't want you to ever be afraid of losing your ticket, but I want you to I want you to realize how empowering this ticket is. You're invited to this banquet not because you're a good guest, but because we have a really great host. It has nothing to do with you and me. It has everything to do with his love and mercy. And next and really importantly, Have you done anything about the invitation? Because those first people knew it, but they didn't do anything. Maybe you're sitting right here and you've never been baptized. Maybe you're sitting right here, you have never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life. I I shared this quote a few weeks ago when we were doing the Psalms of Ascent series. I've had a lot of people ask me about it, and it is ringing in my head. Buddy Beecham said that uh, 
He, hell will be filled with people who didn't drink and didn't cuss and may have even been baptized. Why? Because not one of those things makes somebody a Christian. Not one of those things. It's not what we're doing with our fingertips. It's who is leading our heart. Surrender to Jesus makes you a Christ follower. And, and one last thing. Have you, how have you treated the broken? How have you treated the broken? Can I be just confessing honestly? Sometimes I'm trying to invite people to church that are the nice, clean family. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I, I see them and they're 2.8 kids. And they, oh man, they would be a great addition to our church family. Let's go invite them. The invitation went to everybody. Who are you inviting? Who are you not inviting and why? The parable, the story of Jesus, is the story of you and me. Will you make room in your heart for Him to do what He needs to do? That's what the challenge is. It's not squeeze out a little space or a little time for Him. No, make room to do what you want to do, God. That's our call today. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.